Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here. Just really glad you're with us today. Glad all of you can join us online this morning as well. Uh, Wherever you're at, really glad that you're here with us. Um, Hey, when I say the word impossible, what comes to mind? When you think of impossible, there's a lot of impossible things, you know? I mean, uh, it's impossible for there to be more than 24 hours in a day. Um, it's impossible to lick your elbow. <laughs> Try it. I dare you. It's impossible to travel through time. It's impossible. But you know, sometimes uh, what appears to be impossible actually is possible. Uh, take this bumblebee, because sometimes impossible things happen. Take this bumblebee, for example. Uh, Bumblebees are really big compared to the size of their wings. Do you know that? Um, Compared to most flying insects, bumblebees are big and they're heavy. And at the same time, they can also be known to carry loads of pollen that weigh as much as their bodies do. Uh, Not only that, but uh, when you look at the size of their wings, there's there's no way they should be able to fly. That's what led uh, French entomologist August Magnin to conclude in the 1930s that a bee's flight should be impossible. That's what he said. He also noticed that their flight made no sense because of the haphazard way they flapped their wings all around. Well, um, this led to the opening lines of the bee movie. According to all, here's the opening words, according to all known laws of aviation, there is no way that a bee should be able to fly. Its wings are too small to get its fat little body off the ground. The bee, of course, flies anyway, because bees don't care what humans think is impossible. (laughs) And you know, if bees flew like airplanes, uh, Magnin and the bee movie would be correct, but... Airplanes fly because they can, you know, carefully balance the uh, different dynamics of, of lift and drag and weight and thrust. But a, a bee flies in a different way, a way that appears to be impossible by God's design. You know, bees flap their wings 230 times per second. No wonder they buzz when they come around. I mean, uh, In 2005, too, there was a study by a biology professor at the University of Washington that concluded bees flap their wings, not up and down like a bird, but back and forth. And uh, this was a previous big misconception that kind of led to Magnin's conclusion that bees, it's impossible for them to fly. It appears that way. You know, and and even an airplane, an airplane forces 
uh, air down, which causes lift. But insects, we've learned, they sweep their wings in kind of this partial spin. And rather than forcing air down, they actually create like these little hurricanes around their wings. And to where the eye of those hurricanes is lower pressure than the air around it and it causes lift for the bee. You didn't know you were gonna get physics and and, uh, and biology today, did you? Um, (laughs) But it causes lift and that's how they can just kind of hover. So next time somebody tells you a bee can't fly, that's impossible. It's impossible they can fly. Yeah, no, it's actually possible. They create these little hurricanes. But you know, sometimes things that look impossible really are possible. I mean, so often we can look at situations in our own lives and uh, we can look at it at the surface and say, you know what, that's impossible. It's impossible. I mean, that thing will never change. That will never get better. That person will never change. They'll never grow, they'll never come around. Impossible. I wonder what's the impossible in your world this morning? What is it? Uh, Could be a lot of different things. We'll talk more about that this morning. But today we're gonna be in Acts chapter 12. We're continuing our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we're gonna see the early Christians, particularly Peter and James, finding themselves in the face of the impossible. So uh, thankfully though for God, as the angel told Mary and as Jesus told his disciples with God and for God, all things are possible. Even making honeybees fly and making you, uh, helping you get through whatever it is that's impossible in front of you. So with that in mind, let me pray. And then we're gonna jump into Acts 12. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the impossible. Uh, Lord, that as we face impossible things, you're there and you know and you see and you care and you help us through. And uh, we're gonna see that in Peter's life today. Um, And so help us see it in our own to trust you, to trust your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Holy Spirit, help me as I teach your word and uh, as we work through it and uh, speak to and through me uh, that Jesus might be made much of and that we might leave encouraged and changed. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 12, if you got your Bible, you can turn there with me. Uh, Acts chapter 12, we're gonna start just right at the top in verse one here as we're working through. And in verse one of Acts chapter 12, we read this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. I'm gonna stop there for just a minute because Uh, you even have a sidebar in your bulletin or in your message notes this morning talking about who are these people? Do you know there's a handful of different Herods that show up in the New Testament? And sometimes it gets really confusing on who's who. So I just wanna let you know who this Herod is. Here's kind of the Herod family tree. Herod is much more a title than it really is anyone's name. Uh, Herod means heroic or it means son of a hero. And the first Herod was Herod the Great. You might remember him because his, his father uh, was a hero, was a, a leader, a strong leader in, in Rome. And uh, Herod the Great was Herod and king over Judea when Jesus was born. You remember he tried to kill baby Jesus. Then he killed all of the other babies in Bethlehem. Well, he had a number of wives, um, many of whom he, he also killed. And uh, 
then uh, a number of sons who became Herods and, and led uh, as quote unquote sons of, of a hero. And the one in view in this passage is Herod Agrippa, which would have been his grandson. Herod Agrippa I, in fact. And um, so that's who we have in mind here. It's Herod the Great's grandson. Uh, so at about that time, this Herod, Herod Agrippa, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Check out what he did. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You remember as we've been going through Acts, we've, we've read a lot about Peter and uh, his brother Andrew and then also his friend John. And John had a younger brother, James. Or I don't know if he's younger or not, but had a brother, James. And all four of them grew up in the same town, a little fishing village called Bethsaida on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They grew up together. They all went into the fishing industry and they were maybe even kind of rivals in certain ways, these two sets of brothers. And they grow up together. They, they work together. They end up all following Jesus together. They were friends. And now we read of the first one of them being murdered because of his faith. James becomes the first disciple to be killed because he wouldn't quit talking about and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Herod killed him with the sword and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, well, then he proceeded to arrest Peter too. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Herod, uh, his grandmother, the, the woman who Herod the Great had his dad with was a Jew by blood. And so the Jewish people kind of reluctantly succumbed to Herod Agrippa being their leader. And so in order to please them, this cult of, in their view, cult of Christianity uh, was a threat to everything that was happening. And so to gain favor with the people, he had James murdered. And then when he saw that they were pleased about that, he, get, he arrested Peter too. And it says it happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is likely about a year after Jesus died on the cross because he died during this festival and rose again during this festival, which takes place in the seven days after Passover. And after this was finished, the plan was to get Peter out, to bring him before the people and have the same thing happen to him that had happened to James because all the Jews were in town for Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and he would gain so much favor in doing that. So do you got the scene? James has been murdered. His friend Peter gets arrested too and Peter has to know he's gonna face the same fate. He was in the face of the impossible, wasn't he? Um, he was facing persecution and opposition and in fact, if you look at the text, uh, we'll have it on the screen later. Um, verse four says, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, put Peter in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Four squads would be four sets of four soldiers. And they would guard him in each, uh, there's debate whether that was each of the four watches of the night for three hours each, or the four sections of the day for six hours apiece throughout the day. But two of them would have been handcuffed to Peter one on each side and the other two would have guarded him. And then when the time to switch came, two more got handcuffed to Peter and the other two guarded and, and this continued. I, I think Herod probably remembered how Peter had been rescued 
how Peter had escaped prison in Acts chapter five. He wasn't gonna let that happen again. So Peter is being guarded heavily. He's, he's facing persecution and the whole church is persecution and opposition. Now, uh, I put opposition as well because sometimes, I don't know, people get fired up and they say persecution, ah, real persecution. You're really manly persecution is when you're about to die like James. You know, facing opposition at work, that's not persecution, that's just opposition. You ever hear that sometimes? The reality is it's all persecution and I'm not gonna get into that debate but we're throwing opposition up there too just to make sure that nobody's confused what I'm talking about. It's just on this big scale. It can be really small things from being made fun of to, to really huge things of giving your entire life. And, and it's really not a surprise, you know. Uh, the apostle Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're desiring really to follow Jesus, do you know one thing you can count on? some opposition, some persecution, people not liking it. And it might be uh, really small, minor things like being made fun of by your family or it could get worse to being outcast by your family or to even losing your job or even to the point of physical persecution. We don't know. But any who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. It's a promise. It's what, it's what you sign up for. I mean, uh, but as you do, Jesus says, hey, if the world hates you, don't forget it hated me before it hated you. It'll be okay. Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. And Jesus also said, um, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, when they spurn your name as evil, when you get drugged through the mud, on social media. One, quit checking it. Two, you're blessed. <laughs> All in a, if it's on account of the Son of Man because of Jesus and following him. Jesus' little brother James said, count it all joy, friends, when you face trials of various kinds. Well, Peter was facing the impossible when they had seized him, they put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. How would he ever escape? There's no way. It's impossible. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, that was Herod's intent. He was gonna face the same fate as James. But while Peter was being held, look what the church was doing. Earnest prayer was made for him. For him was made to God by the church. They, they were all praying for Peter. Now, we don't know what they were praying. They might've been praying for God to release him. They might've just been praying, help, help Peter stand firm, help him make it. God, just care for him, whatever's gonna happen. Comfort him. Uh, you know, sometimes that persecution and opposition is, is kind of physical, but you know, other times it can be spiritual. That there can be spiritual opposition to you. Or the Bible uses terms like oppression and bondage. Uh, the Old Testament, the primary illustration of this is in the book of Exodus. God had rescued uh, or led his people to Egypt to rescue them from the famine and care for them 400 years prior and gave them great favor and they increased, they multiplied. 
But after 400 years, we read that a new Pharaoh rose, a new king, Pharaoh just means king. A new king rose in Egypt and he didn't remember all of that. He just saw all these people and he was threatened. And so he began to oppress them and he began to give them heavy tasks and incredible burdens to carry and to do as slaves, enslaving them. And all of this was taking place. And uh, here's what we read at the end of chapter two, that in the midst of all of that, God saw the people of Israel and he knew. See, what's happening is uh, in that chapter, we read of a guy named Moses who God miraculously rescued out of this oppression. And then uh, Moses goes after one of the taskmasters after he grows up who are going after God's people. And then uh, he ends up murdering the guy. And so he runs for his life out into the wilderness. And then 40 years later, God raises up Moses when he's 80 years old and brings him back to rescue his people. In all of that, as they cried out to God in the face of the impossible, they were, they were, uh, they were oppressed, they were in bondage. God rescued them. He saw and he knew. Whatever your impossible is, God sees it and he knows. It, it might be some kind of spiritual oppression. I don't know. You might be stuck in bondage to sin or an addiction of some sort. Or maybe you're stuck in bondage just to the effects of sin, you know? I mean, uh, all health issues, mental struggles, frustrating, overbearing, negative relationships, all those things. I'm not saying that they're a direct result of your sin, but I am saying all of that brokenness in our world is the effect of sin. It's because the world's jacked up because we've rebelled against God. And so all of that that we suffer then is the effects of sin. And sometimes we're just, we're stuck in that situation and it feels impossible well, you should know God sees. He knows. And not only this, but uh, you should also know he's always able to intervene. He's always able. He is. If, if he's not, is he really God? He's always able to intervene. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 12 where we left Peter kind of stuck. And I love, by the way, this next scene. I think it's uh, this and the ones following are some of, to me, some of the funniest scenes even in the Bible. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so the night before Herod's gonna bring him out to have him executed like James with the sword. By the way, to be executed with the sword means you were beheaded. That's what Peter's facing. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. There he is, he's chained up. Sentries before the door uh, were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And then he struck Peter on the side to wake him up. You know what this reminds me of? When I was a teenager, I'd be dead asleep in my room and my dad would walk in, the light would come on, a light would shine in my bedroom. And then he'd shake me and maybe pound on me a little bit. Get up, because I was so out. 
Parents of teenagers, does this scene take place in your home? <laughs> I just think that's really funny. Peter was so asleep that the angel comes in, flips on the light. Hey, dude, get up. <laughs> that's what he tells him. He's like, uh, hey, get up quickly. We gotta go. You're running late, Pete. And the chains fell off his hands. You know, this is just, it's really funny. And, but humanly speaking, how in the world is Peter sleeping this soundly? He had to have some anxiety about what was gonna happen. He knew what waited the next day, didn't he? He saw what had happened to, John, to James, excuse me. He had to have anxiety. Yet he slept. You know, uh, knowing this trial and others of Peter's, it kind of makes what he writes in his letter even more powerful where he says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Surely Peter knew what it was like to have anxiety. He knows though that God sees and he knows. And you know, ultimately that's exactly what sleep is. It's just resting and Casting your anxieties on God and trusting him. Rest is trusting God. Sleep is trusting God. God didn't have to make us needing sleep, did he? He could have made us so that we could just function 24 hours a day. That, that's totally, he could have done that. Why did he make us have to sleep? Well, so that you would recognize and I would recognize He's ultimately in control and I would trust him because those hours that I'm asleep, you can ask my wife and Charlie, if I'm out, I'm out. Like there's nothing going on. Rest is trusting God, sleep is trusting him. You know, the retreat last weekend, Hannah and I were away at a retreat for pastors and their wives. And um, it was just a time really to, to get away and they'd scheduled it purposefully over a Sunday to force pastors like me to not be here on a Sunday if they came and just get away and rest and disconnect and trust. It's Jesus church, he'll take care of everything while we're gone. That's the same thing when you sleep. You just, you trust God to take care of everything while you're gone. And so sometimes, listen, not always, okay? Not always, hear that. But sometimes, maybe our lack of sleep or our anxiety, sometimes it can be just the lack of resting in God. Uh, Jesus said, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than all those things? Jesus says, don't be anxious. But Paul says the same thing, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, friends, God gives rest. You know, the number one, I was joking about social media earlier, but the number one cause of anxiety in our world today, especially in teenagers, is social media always checking, always comparing, always trying to say the right thing, always trying to look the right way. There was a study uh, just within the last couple years, especially among teenage girls, uh, and I can find it for you if you're interested, but 
uh, it, it shows that within uh, high school girls who struggled with anxiety within two months of totally disconnecting from social media, like 90 to 100% of their symptoms were gone. It's crazy. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your request be known to God. Trust him, rest in him. You know, uh, Psalm 127, I love this. It's in vain you rise up early, go to, go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, just working yourself to death. For he gives rest. He gives to his beloved sleep. He gave Peter sleep. And so like Peter, we can sleep. We can rest, we can trust him. I wonder again, what's your impossible? Let me ask that one more time. Um, is it a health issue? Is it work? Is it financial? Is it a struggling, hurting, or wayward child? Is it a relationship? Often uh, it's relational things that are, are our impossible. And so we find ourselves not sleeping like Peter, but up stewing and filled with anxiety. Maybe I'm the only one. Is it just me? Because I do. I'll wake up and rehearse conversations over and over and over and over in my head. So how did Peter sleep? How did he rest? He gave into the gospel. Uh, you know, Jesus gives peace. You can rest in him. Knowing your problem might still be there when you wake up, probably still will be actually, but his heart for you will bring you through the storm. He will. You remember this book uh, we gave out a couple years ago? There's still a handful of free copies out at the little bookstore resource center by the coffee, coffee cafe area. Gentle and lowly. Let me read you a quote from this. Dane Ortland. he writes this. He says, uh, you know, there's an entire psychological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness. That's not something we say or even think so much as we exhale. You can smell it on some people, though some of us are good at hiding it, that anxiety. If you trace this fountain of scurrying haste and all its various manifestations down to the root, you don't find childhood difficulties or a Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses, you find gospel deficit. You find lack of felt awareness of Jesus's heart. All the worry and dysfunction and resentment are the natural fruit of living in a mental universe of the law of trying to do things is what he means to please God. Striving. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest. The felt love. Wholeness and flourishing and shalom. That existential calm that for brief gospel sane moment settles over you and lets you step in and out of the storm of worksness. You see for a moment, you see for a moment that in Christ, you truly are invincible. The, the verdict really is in. Nothing can touch you. He's made you his own and he'll never cast you out. So in the face of the impossible, you can sleep. Do you know why? 
Because he never does. Because God never does. You know, I, I, I don't think Peter knew what was going to happen. He really didn't know. But God saw. And God knew. Maybe Psalm 121 was on Peter's mind. You know, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber, slumber, slumber nor sleep. Whether Peter was thinking of this or not, let's read and see what happens. The angel said to him, or excuse me, and behold, an angel of the Lord, let me read this again, stood next to him and, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. He woke him, get up quickly. And the chains fell off. And then the angel said to him, Peter, dress yourself, put on your sandals. He must've really been out of it. Like, dude, you got to get dressed before we leave this place. <laughs> right? You, you got to get ready before you, you're not going to school looking like that, son. You know, that's sort of, I can hear my dad. And he went out, Peter did, and he followed him. He didn't know what was being done by the angel was real. He was so out of it. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out along one street and then immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel. He's rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God did the impossible. Friends, in the face of the impossible, God is always able to intervene and to do the impossible. Do you believe that? He can do it. He does it regularly. Let's keep reading of what happens because, you know, sometimes him doing it is a physical manifestation of, of his power like he did with Peter. Sometimes the biggest thing God does in the impossible when he does the impossible is he calms your heart in such a way that you trust him. And sometimes, if your heart's like mine, that's maybe even a bigger task than it is for God to do something incredibly in the physical realm. See, when, when Peter realized this, check out what happens. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Are you confused yet? So there's a handful of Marys in the Bible. There's also a lot of Johns and James and Simons and others. But this Mary was the mother of, uh, you know him as Mark. He wrote the gospel of Mark. We're going to see him show up over the next few chapters in the book of Acts, uh, accompanying uh, Paul and Barnabas in, in a missionary journey. And evidently she was wealthy or... Uh, or may, we, we, there's, some believe maybe she was a widow or her husband wasn't a believer because he's not mentioned. But she, we gather that she was influential and wealthy because there were, she had room in her house, which many didn't, for many people to gather and to pray. And not only this, but her house had a gate. See, when Peter got there, he knocked at the door of the gateway and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda means Rose. And if you're a Golden Girls fan, you know uh, Rose is kind of the ditzy one. Rhoda kind of lives, lives that up here. Well, check this out. Recognizing Peter's voice, 
in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and responded that Peter was standing at the gate. Do you remember what they were all doing in verse five? You can look back if you don't remember. Peter was in prison and what was everybody in the church doing? Praying, for who? For Peter. And now here's Peter. Whoa, it's you, Peter. And she runs and tells everybody. Do you think it's funny that Peter, the angel helped Peter get past all the guards, the chains fell off, they didn't wake up. He gets through different checkpoints in the prison. The, the gate of the prison opens up for him to go out into the city, but then he shows up and there's this young girl named Rose and he can't get past her. <laughs> I just think that's really, really funny. It's just ironic. And, and then they said to her, this is why it's assumed that she's probably young because they just dismissed her. They're like, you're out of your mind. Peter's not, what are you talking about? He's in prison. But she kept insisting it was so. So they kept saying, well, well, then he must have died. Maybe it's his angel or his spirit or something. You know, Herod must have got him. They just, they didn't believe. But Peter kept knocking. Hey, <laughs> let me in. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. You know, sometimes when, when we pray and we ask for God and we believe for him to do the impossible, we need to ask in faith, you know? I mean, uh, James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Trust God, ask him to do the impossible, but ask in faith. Knowing he may not answer exactly what you want, but when they were asking, I think they were asking in faith, but then also trust that he's gonna do it. And they were amazed when God had actually answered their prayers. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, Peter's like, I guarantee they're looking for me now. He described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And then he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Is Peter losing it? Isn't James dead? It's a different James. This James is James, the half-brother of Jesus, his younger brother, who was a leader in the early church. See how it gets confusing in a hurry? Uh, this is Jesus, uh, the leader of the church, Jesus' little brother. And so then he departed and he went to another place. And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries, the guards, and ordered that they should be put to death. That was kind of standard Roman law. If you lost a prisoner, you suffered what they were supposed to suffer. And then he went down, Herod did, we'll catch him next week in Caesarea to spend time there. So we've already said, you know, ask in faith, but then as we close, let me just close with this. Trust God's power. Trust his power. It's easy to get up and say, yeah, and even, even to affirm it ourselves, yeah, God can do the impossible. But sometimes would you agree like believing it and thinking it and acting on it can be like, yeah, I don't know if I really believe it. Trust God's power. Trust it. 
As we wrap, I want to introduce you to what a friend of mine calls the Ginsu knife verse of the Bible. Do you know the Ginsu knife? I have one here. <laughs> the Ginsu knife, this thing was incredible. It was on an infomercial, late 70s and 80s. And uh, I mean, this thing could cut through just about anything. I don't know if that video will play. Maybe it won't. Oh, there it goes. He's cutting through a, a tomato, you know, just perfectly, just this tiny little slice of bread, meat. Uh, I don't know what that is, spinach, packed really tight. It looks awful. But then a beer can, I mean, how's he doing that? And it stays sharp and he slices right through the tomato. Then he starts chopping wood and he slices through paper. He does all kinds of stuff. And if you're watching this infomercial, you see the guy with the Ginsu knife and you're, you're going, you're watching this, you go, that's incredible. And then the guy on the, 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 the narrator says what? But wait, there's more, right? He says, wait, there's more. Not only that, but we're gonna give you this, uh, this fork to go with your Ginsu knife. So that way you can hold the meat and cut it and hold the can and slice right through it. But wait, there's more. And then he pulls out like this, uh, the steak knife set. You'll get a whole set of steak knives with your Ginsu knife if you buy one. But wait, but what's the next? There's more. He's got the peeler, the six in one peeler tool that can slice, <laughs> slice a potato chip so thin you can see through it. But wait, there's more. There's the, there's the rotary potato slicer that slices your potatoes. And you can get all of this, check this out, for $9.95. But act now, because it's not gonna be around forever. Are you familiar with the Ginsu knife verse in the Bible? It's in Ephesians chapter three. Uh, Paul wraps up the first half of his letter to the church in Ephesus and he says, now to him who is able. Think about that. You're impossible. Now to him who's able, he's able. But wait, <laughs> there's more. To him who's able to do more. He can do more. He's not done. He can do more. But wait, there's more. He can do far more, far more abundantly more than you could ever ask or hope or think or imagine. There, there's more, do you see? He's able. It's the Ginsu knife verse of the Bible. Friends, in the face of the impossible, God is always able to intervene and to do the impossible. And sometimes that impossible thing is simply an impossible work in your heart of changing you and giving you peace to trust him through the impossible. Let's pray.